Welcome to the Gospel Addict Podcast. I'm Greg Bryan. And I'm Jim Resky. We're gospel addicts because we believe the gospel of Jesus isn't just good news, it's the best news ever. We're addicted to the gospel because it doesn't just start us out in the Christian life, it is the Christian life. Join us as we look at the Bible through the lens of the gospel. Thanks so much for listening. Good morning, gentlemen. It's good to good to be with you guys. And yeah, we're going to be looking at the life of Jacob today. All right, let's open in prayer. Heavenly Father, shine your light, the light of your word into our hearts today. Open our eyes and our minds to comprehend the nuggets of truth that are contained in these chapters of scripture. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Your word is truth and life and health. It's nourishment for our souls and refreshment to our spirits. Lord, we desire that to study your word through the guidance of your Holy Spirit and to grow in the grace and spiritually mature in our faith. As we study your word this morning, may your name be exalted and lifted up for you alone are worthy of all of our praise. Open our eyes, God, to see your truth. Open our ears to hear your voice. Open our hearts to receive what you have for each one of us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so we're going to be looking at the life of Jacob. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They are among the most significant people in the, in the whole Bible. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But it's not based on their personal character. But it's based on the character of God. I mean, they were wealthy, they were powerful, yet each one of them was capable of lying, deceit, and selfishness. In other words, they were just like us, trying to please God, but often, so often falling short. I broke Jacob's life down into seven acts that I hope to get us through this morning. And I just want to give you a quick overview of those acts. Act number one, we see God's promise to Jacob. Before he's even born, while he's in his mother's womb, God says the older will serve the younger. Before he could do anything, God reveals his plan for Jacob. Act number two is we see that Jacob lives up to his name. His name means heel grasper. And he literally grasps the heel of his brother when he's being born. But then he also grasps his brother's birthright and blessing. And during his flight. So he's forced to run away from home. When he's fleeing, God appears to him, not only to confirm to Jacob his blessing, but he also awakens in Jacob a personal knowledge of himself. And then we get to act three. In the third act, Jacob is experienced life from the other side. He meets his match when he runs into Laban. But there's a curious change that takes place. At one point, you would think he would just totally just leave Laban behind. But we see that he waits another six years because he's waiting for God's permission to return to his homeland. And that brings us to Act 4. In Act 4, Jacob is now in the role of grabber again. But this time, he's by the Jordan River, and he's grabbing God. God changes his name to Israel, which means God contended or wrestles with God, triumphant in God. 
and Jacob can no longer be the self-sufficient, proud individual he was. He will become dependent on God, and God will now fight for him. This is the climax of Jacob's life. Instead of grabbing other people, he's grabbing onto God himself, and he doesn't want to let go. And that brings us to act number five, where Jacob returns to Bethel with a new identity and a zeal to live for God. Then act six, Jacob's sixth stage is a life where he, he was to be grabbed. This time, God achieved a firm grab, a, a hold of him. And in responding to Joseph's, and this kind of gets beyond what we're, our, our scope of study today, but in, in Genesis 46, Joseph invites him to come to Egypt, but he waits for God's permission to go. And then act number seven, you'll have to wait till the end of the presentation to, to see what happens there. Oh, so, so when we're studying Jacob, it should make us ask some questions. Here's some questions that should come to mind. Can you think of times when God made himself known to you? Whether it was through his word or through other people or through life circumstance, do you allow yourself to meet him as you study his word? What difference have those experiences made in your life? And are you more like the young Jacob, forcing God to track you down in the desert of your own plans and mistakes, or are you like the older Jacob, who presented his desires and plans to God for his approval before taking any action. When we're studying the Bible, I think, I think it's important that we should reflect on this. The Bible is full of all kinds of rich images and stories, but they come from a time and a culture that's different from our own. The writers of the Bible are Hebrew or Eastern, and so they're writing from an Eastern perspective. Now, most Christians in our culture are Greek, or Western. And so we think of the world in, in a much different way than the people of the Bible. And as a result, our understanding of the Bible is sometimes lost as we try to explain it through a Western lens. And I just want to share some, some quick examples of this. The Greek mind focuses on individuals, while the Hebrew mind tends to focus on the community. I mean, if you just think about the worship songs that are written in America, open the eyes of my heart, Lord, open the eyes of my heart. There, there's so, so many of our songs that we sing. I think we're getting better at this, but our individual in nature. When it comes to words, the Greek mind prefers prose or outlines or lists or bullet points, while the Hebrew mind pre prefers poetry, imagery, symbolism. English has close to a half a million words, but biblical Hebrew has 8,000 words. 8,000 words. Amazingly simple, but deep at the same time. As for numbers, the Greek mind thinks in terms of quantity. We always just think in terms of quantity. I thought about bringing like five oranges and putting them up here. I meant to do that. I forgot. And if you saw that, you would say, oh, there's five oranges. But the Hebrew mind thinks differently when it comes to, to, to numbers. They see symbol. They see quality. So, for example, the story of David and Goliath. How many stones did he pick up? Five. Five smooth stones. Now, to the Hebrew mind, when they read that, you know what they think of? They think of the Torah. 
So here you've got this David, and he's going with the Torah, with God, to take on Goliath. He had five stones. Think about when Jesus fed 5,000 people. He starts with five loaves and two fish. Think of those five loaves. When they saw the five loaves, the Eastern mind would think of the Torah. You know, and what, would, what about the two fish? They might think of, remember how, the ten, they might think of the Ten Commandments because it was written on two tablets. The ten, so anyway, my point is they think of numbers differently than the way we think of numbers. When they think of things like eternal life, we think of it as it starts when our life ends on earth, where the Eastern mindset thinks of it as living in harmony with God now. The Greek mind wants to prove God's existence. I mean, how often are we going to the Bible trying to prove God's existence? But the Hebrew mind, which the authors wrote, assumes the existence of God. It's assumed. To the Greek, truth is rational and scientific, and truth is often static and unchanging. But to the Hebrew, truth is religious or experiential, and this is big, truth is unfolding. So when you read the Old Testament, what we see is that God is unfolding his truth to us. Keep that in mind as we journey through the Old Testament. Okay, let's dive into the book of Genesis. Can I have, uh, let's see, Ray or Big Dan? Ray, you said you're younger than Big Dan? Okay, well, so I'm choosing you because uh, Jacob was the younger. That you so can you read this passage, Genesis 25, 19 to 26? This is the account of Abraham's son, Isaac. Abraham became the father of Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he married Rebekah, daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean from Paddan or Aram, and the sister of Laban, the Aramean. Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was barren. The Lord answered his prayer, and his wife, Rebekah, became pregnant. The babies jostled each other within her, and she said, Why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you will be separated. One people will be stronger than the other, and the older will serve the younger. When the time came for her to give birth, there were twin boys in her womb. The first to come out was red, and his whole body was like a hairy garment, so they named him Esau. After this, his brother came out with his hand grasping Esau's heel, so he was named Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when Rebekah gave birth to them. So we learned in Genesis 12 that God says to Abraham that through his family, every generation will have a messianic seed. Because one day, out of that family, one person, one of the descendants will be the Messiah who will conquer sin and death in the world. So in the womb, before Jacob has done anything, God declares that he is that messianic seed. He's going to be the strong nation, even though he's the youngest born. His brother's going to serve him. God makes it very clear that his choices are based on his own sovereign will, not on human merit. In fact, when the Apostle Paul wrote about this in Romans chapter 9, verses 11 to 12, he said, Though the twins were not yet born and had done anything good or bad, 
So Paul emphasizes that God spoke with respect to the twins before they had done anything. The first one was named Esau because he was red and very hairy, which is what the word Esau means in Hebrew. The second one comes out grasping Esau's heel. So his name is Jacob, which means heel grabber. Let's continue on. Ray, would you continue on, please? The boys grew up and Esau became a skillful hunter, a man of the open country, while Jacob was a quiet man staying among the tents. Isaac, who had a taste for wild game, loved Esau, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Once, when Jacob was cooking some stew, Esau came in from the open country, famished. He said to Jacob, quick, let me have some of that red stew. I'm famished. That is why he was also called Edom. Jacob replied, first, sell me your birthright. Look, I'm about to die, Esau said. What good is the birthright to me? But Jacob said, swear to me first. So he swore an oath to him, selling his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau his some bread and some lentil stew. He ate and drank and then got up and left. So Esau despised his birthright. Okay, so right away we notice that this family is very dysfunctional. <laughs> I mean, it had so much potential, though, didn't it? I mean, think about it. Isaac was married to one woman. You don't see that much in the Old Testament. There's usually multiple wives involved. They only had two kids, so they could easily just love them both equally. But, of course, we find this extreme form of favoritism. Esau is like an outdoorsman and loved hunting, so he's like a real man's man. So Isaac loves him and prefers him. Where Jacob is indoorsy, <laughs> we would say indoorsy, or you could say intense. I mean, he lived intense. He liked the tents. It's like one of my favorite camping jokes. Camping is so intense. But anyway, Jacob is indoorsy, and but Rebecca prefers him. So you see this incredible favoritism happening. And then we have this interesting exchange that takes place. Esau's animal appetite seemed to rule his life. It wasn't just a matter of hunting because most men would have had to hunt for the meals for their family. But on this occasion, he came home exhausted and hungry and he was about to pass out. And his brother took advantage of the circumstances. Jacob was an opportunist. When his brother comes home starving, he seizes the opportunity to seal Esau's birthright. So what is a birthright? Well, the birthright was the honor given to the firstborn, bestowing kind of a head of household status and the right to inherit the father's estate. The son with the birthright would receive a double portion of whatever was passed down. But that day, Esau chose to fill his belly and forfeited that double portion. And it says he despised his birthright. Big Dan, will you pick up reading the next 10 verses? Genesis 27, 1 through 10. Okay. When Isaac was old and his eyes were so weak that he could no longer see, he called for Esau, his older son, and said to him, my son, here I am, he answered. Isaac said, I am now an old man and don't know the day of my death. Now then, get your equipment, your quiver and bow, and go out to the open country to hunt some wild game for me. Prepare me the kind of tasty food 
I like and bring it to me to eat so that I may give you my blessings before I die. Now, Rebekah was listening as Isaac spoke to his son Esau. When Esau left for the open country to hunt game and bring it back, Rebekah said to her son, Jacob, look, I overheard your father say to your brother Esau, bring me some game and prepare me some tasty food to eat so that I may give you my blessings in the presence of the Lord before I die. Now, my son, listen carefully and do what I tell you. Go out to the flock and bring me two choice young goats so I can prepare some tasty food for your father just the way he likes it. Then take it to your father to eat so that he may give you his blessing before he dies. So we see that Jacob already stole the birthright. Now we're going to see him steal the blessing. So this story is all about the blessing. Well, what is the blessing in the Bible? The blessing is like an accurate spiritual discernment of who a person is, what gifts God has given them, and what they're becoming, what God is making them. The blessing of the firstborn is to have the most powerful person in the clan, the father, looking at you and saying, there's no one like you. I love you more than anybody. You're special. The struggle for blessing is the theme of Jacob's life. And it's a struggle of all human beings. Every human being wants this. We all want other people and ultimately God to speak words of blessing into our lives because we know that words have power to them, especially words of affirmation or, or valuing, but also words of condemning and cursing. Words have power to shape who we are. Let's continue on, Big Dan. Jacob said to Rebecca, his mother, but my brother Esau is a hairy man while I have smooth skin. What if my father touches me? I would appear to be tricking him and would bring down a curse on myself rather than a blessing. His mother said to him, my son, let the curse fall on me. Just do what I say. Go and get them for me. So he went and got them and brought them to his mother. And she prepared some tasty food, just the way his father liked it. Then Rebecca took the best clothes of Esau, her older son, which she had in the house, and put them on her younger son, Jacob. She also covered his hands and smooth parts of his neck with the goatskins. Then she handed to her son, Jacob, the tasty food and the bread she had made. He went to his father and said, my father, yes, my son. He answered, who is it? Jacob said to his father, I am Esau, your firstborn. I have done as you told me. Please sit up and eat some of my game so that you may give me your blessing. So here we see Jacob's questioning whether he can really pull this off, but his mother convinces him and equips him with all these different props. And then Jacob dresses up and proceeds with the deception. But before we continue reading, note when Isaac asks him, who is it? Jacob says, I am Esau, your firstborn. He lies here. But we're going to see in the future, in, in, a, in a future part of his life, when he's wrestling with the angel, with God, God asks him the same question. And, and, and he comes clean when God asks him. So we're going to move forward. Let me just summarize what happens here. So Isaac asks him, how did you find it so quickly? How did you find this food so quickly? And it's, he says, the Lord, your God, gave me success. Okay, really? 
I mean, that, where's the lightning bolt from heaven when he says that? He's putting it on God. And then Isaiah says, come near so I can touch you, my son, and see if you're really, really my son Esau or not. So Jacob went close to his father who touched him and said, the voice is the voice of Jacob, but the hands are the hands of Esau. He didn't recognize him for his hands were hairy like those of his brother Esau, but he proceeded to bless him. And he asked him one more time, are you really my son Esau? I am, he replied. Again, Where's the second lightning bolt right there? Jacob comes near to Isaac and Isaac bless him. And here's the blessing. Ah, the smell of my son is like the smell of the field that the Lord is blessed. May God give him heaven's dew and earth's riches an abundance of, of grain and new wine. May nations serve you and peoples bow down to you. Be Lord over your brothers and may the sons of your mother bow down to you. May those who curse you be cursed and may those who bless you be blessed. Okay, so what do we learn from this? And, and this morning, I'm gonna be like super practical and jump to like applications for us today. What do we learn from, from this story? from Jacob. We learn that there's a little bit of Jacob in all of us. We learn that every human being wants the blessing of the firstborn. We want other people to say, there's nobody like you. You're special. You're unique. But we often make the mistake that Jacob makes. Tim Keller says this, quote, Jacob is a frightening picture of how most of us try to get the blessing. We dress up as somebody else, somebody that we're not. And for, see, for Jacob to get the blessing, he couldn't be himself. And how many people alive are doing the same thing? We dress up. We don't let people see who we really are. We don't want other people to see our flaws, our fears, our failures. And consider this. At the moment that Jacob got the blessing, Jacob finally got what he wanted from his father. But he's looking at his father's his face and he sees the radiant loving joyful look he got the words from isaac lips that he's always wanted to hear but do you think it helped do you think it actually changed him it didn't change him because he knew that isaac wasn't loving him he knew he was an imposter so how and where do we get the blessing Again, I'm jumping to personal application. We need to get it from God, and it only comes through Jesus Christ. It only comes by grace. Jacob was wrong when he said, I'm, your, I'm the firstborn, on, on a couple different levels. The Bible tells us that Jesus Christ is the one true firstborn over all creation. He's the firstborn from the dead. He's the only begotten son from the Father. So what that means is Jesus lived life through all eternity in the state of firstborn blessing. But here's the thing. He left that firstborn blessing. He comes to earth. He dies on the cross. And then Paul writes in Galatians chapter 3, verse 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to us through Jesus Christ. See, Jesus Christ dressed up like us and got the curse that we deserve so that when we believe in Jesus, we can be clothed like him. See, that's the way of the gospel. The way of the gospel is that Jesus dressed up 
and got the curse that we deserve so that when we believe in him, he now accepts us and sees us as everything that Jesus has done. Yeah. You know, what's interesting here is you just had us read that when Rebecca is pregnant and she feels this tugging inside of her, she goes to the Lord and asks, and he tells her, he emphatically tells her, the older will serve the younger. But what does she do? She's complicit because she goes to Jacob and encourages him to do what he does and to lie and to steal a blessing. So she doesn't have the confidence that God will fulfill the promise he makes to her. Yeah, she tried to take things in her own hands, which how often do we do that? We run away from God. We feel God is leading us or guiding us, and then we, we try to take things in our circumstances in our own hands. So I'm going to move forward and just summarize a lot, a big, vast portion of Jacob's life. So what happens? Esau comes home and the whole deception is exposed. But Isaac makes it clear to Esau that he can't undo it. So he blessed Jacob and Jacob will be blessed. That Esau begs and weeps. And then it says that Isaac trembled violently. And he says, I blessed your brother and he will be blessed. It's almost as if Isaac at this point is saying, I've been fighting God because I really wanted to give that blessing to Esau. And he realizes at that moment that he can't fight against God. And, and it's interesting to note that God is coming here and he's blessing the most screwed up member of the whole family. But why does he do that? Well, maybe it's because the moral of the story is that God brings his scandalous intervening grace into the lives of people who don't seek it, who don't deserve it, who continually resist it, and who don't even appreciate it after they've been saved by it over and over and over again. That sounds like a lot of us. Then we see the story moves forward. What's the result? So Jacob got this great blessing. The result, Jacob himself, he's been made the head of the clan. He's been given the firstborn blessing. But Jacob goes away penniless. He goes away clanless. You know, when is he going to be able to come back? We don't know. Because we know as long as Esau is alive, he probably won't be able to come back. At this point, his life is falling apart. And that's when God shows up in the next act. Can I have somebody read... Maybe uh, Rex, could you read this? Genesis 28, 10 to 20. He left Beersheba and went toward Haran. And he came to a certain place and stayed there that night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and lay down in that place to sleep. And he dreamed, and behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and in your offspring shall all the families of earth be blessed. 
Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. So early in the morning, Jacob took the stone that he put under his head and set it up for a pillar and poured oil on top of it. He called the name of that place Bethel, but the name of the city was Luz at first. Then Jacob made a vow saying, if God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear, so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone which I have set up for a pillar shall be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will give a full tenth to you. That's great. Thanks. So it's important to note here in this story that Jacob is not actively seeking God. And even though his life's falling apart, he's not seeking God. But God, out of his grace, is seeking him. So it's appropriate for us to ask, why does God come to Jacob when he doesn't ask? Why does God come to Jacob when he didn't pray? The answer might be because God is attracted to brokenness. And so in this dream, Jacob sees three things and he hears three things. So what does he see? He sees a stairway. And by the way, we call this Jacob's ladder. It was not a ladder. It was a stairway and it was huge. It was huge. And it's a stairway that starts in heaven and comes all the way down to earth. Then he sees angels on the stairway, showing that God's royal power is on the move. That messengers are going up and messengers are coming down. God is working. And that's one of the, one of the things here is that Jacob, his life is falling apart. And he's probably like, where the heck is God? But God is showing him, I'm working. And how many times in our lives does that happen? We think, where, where are you, God? All this stuff is happening around me. But God is giving him a glimpse. I'm working. I'm moving. I'm doing things. And then he sees the Lord. The Lord descended the stairway and came and stood right over him in a posture of intimacy and nearness. And then Jacob hears three things. He hears God say, I am with you. You know, he was alone. He was friendless at this time. And then he hears God say, I will watch over you wherever you go. At this point, he was penniless. He had no real possessions. And then God says, I will bring you back to this land. He didn't have any wealth. So we see that God is meeting Jacob. And this dream shows us that God's power is on the move. He's out there. He's working. He's everywhere. And yet Jacob has not even asked for God. And it's interesting that God is not at the top of the ladder saying, Jacob, come up here. God comes down to him. And, and that's, that's an interesting picture, right, of the gospel, how God comes down to us. It says that Jacob sees the gate of heaven. What is the gate of heaven? Well, when the narrator gives us this term in Genesis 28, he wants us to think back of a story in Genesis 11. In Genesis 11, there was a group of people together, and they were building a tower. Remember, they call it, what did they call it? The Tower of Babel. 
the Tower of Babel. Babel means the gate of heaven or the gate of a god. So the reason Jesus said this is a stairway to heaven. So the difference between these two pictures is the one where the people were building the stairway up to heaven. It was man trying to get up to God. The difference here, it's very clear that God comes down to Jacob. And, and that's a picture of the difference between religion and the gospel. Re religion is us trying to build a, a stairway up to get to God. And every religion tries to do this. But the gospel is that God came down to us. So what a, what a beautiful foreshadowing of the gospel we see here. Grace. Grace, exactly. There's another time in scripture that this happens. Remember in John chapter one, when there's this guy named Nathaniel that Jesus comes in contact with? Philip goes to Nathaniel and says, hey, we found the Messiah. And he's from Nazareth. And Nathaniel's like, Nazareth? Can anything good come from Nazareth? And he's like, come and see. And so Nathaniel goes and sees and he meets Jesus. And Jesus, what does Jesus say to him? He says, hey, here's an honest man in whom there's no deceit. And Jesus says, I saw you under the fig tree. When he said, I saw you under the fig tree, something happened in Nathaniel's mind. We have no idea what was happening under the fig tree. But when Jesus said that to Nathaniel, it clicked. And he realized this is not just a normal man. This must be the one. But then Jesus says this. You believe because I told you I saw you under the fig tree. You will see greater things than this. I tell you the truth. You will see heaven open and the angels ascending and descending on the Son of Man. On the Son of Man. It's a picture of what, ja what Jacob saw, except there's one difference. The difference is Jesus is the stairway. Jesus is the stairway. That's pretty powerful. So after this dream, Jacob gets up, but then he meets his match in Laban. Uh, remember this? He ends up meeting Laban. He agrees to work seven years to marry his oldest daughter, Rachel, the one he's in love with. Younger daughter. Oh, yeah, that's right. Younger daughter, Rachel. That's right. Thank you for correcting me. Yeah. The years go by fast, but then on his wedding night, Laban plays a trick on him and puts the older daughter in his bed. And he wakes up and there's Leah. He thinks he went to bed with Rachel and he wakes up and there's Leah. And there's a whole lesson about that, that we could talk about. I think the basic lesson is that when we look to find things in the world that will satisfy us, we always are disappointed. It's always Leah. We think it's Rachel, but, it, but it's always Leah. He agrees to work another seven years so he can be married to both daughters. He loves Rachel more than Leah, which causes major problems. God blesses Jacob. During this time, God blesses him, though, materially and with lots of children. He has 11 boys and one girl named Dinah at this point. But things get difficult with Laban, and he wants to leave. And he tells Laban he wants to go back to his homeland but Laban keeps stalling and Jacob stays. And here we see that, you know, this dream that he had had an impact on his life because he stays until he hears from God in Genesis chapter 31. And I'm just going to quickly summarize what happens here. This is what I call act three. In act three, Jacob hears from God and sneaks away from Laban without his knowledge 
His wife steals some of the household goods from Laban, which is a, a huge problem. Laban start chases after him and catches up and confronts Jacob. But then they agree to separate on friendly terms. And Jacob prepares to meet Esau. And he's worried that Esau still wants to kill him. So he sends his family ahead. And once again, he finds himself alone. And that brings us to probably the most important story about Jacob. And it's, uh, it's here in Genesis 32. Could somebody read Genesis 32, 22 to 32? Thanks, Tom. That night, Jacob got up and took his two wives, his two maidservants and his 11 sons, and crossed the ford of the Jabuk. After he had sent them across the stream, he sent over all his possessions. So Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him till daybreak. When the man saw that he could not overpower him, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip, so that his hip was wrenched as he wrestled with the man. Then the man said, let me go, for it is daybreak. But Jacob replied, I will not let you go unless you bless me. The man asked him, what is your name? Jacob, he answered. Then the man said, your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, because you have struggled with God and with men and have overcome. Jacob said, please tell me your name. But he replied, why do you ask my name? Then he blessed him there. So Jacob called the place Peniel, saying, It is because I saw God face to face, and yet my life was spared. With the sun rose above him as he passed Peniel, and he was limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the Israelites do not eat the tendon attached to the socket of the hip, because the socket of Jacob's hip was touched near the tendon. Okay, so this is the climactic moment in Jacob's life. This is the huge turning point, the breakthrough time, the place where Jacob finally finds out what life is all about, finally figures out what his main problem is, and he changes how his strategy, his life strategy. And it's interesting, when he meets God, he finds out that he's a wrestler, up until this time, if you think about it, Jacob is kind of trying to control his life. He's trying to control God. He thought the main problem in his life was Esau. All of his life, he thought what really messed him up was his brother Esau. But suddenly it's revealed to him that all his life, he's really been wrestling with God. He's been trying to control God. And this is the problem. It's almost like God is saying to him in this wrestling match, the real problem is you're not trusting me. The real problem is you've been fighting with me for my will for your life. And you don't want to depend on my grace. You want to fight every bit of the way. By the way, at the end of this, the, the story, he's limping now for the rest of his life. And that limp is a reminder. It's actually a sign of grace, that limp, because he didn't get what he deserved. He got much less than what he deserved at this point so if god had come down into this relationship in power he could have won the battle but he would have lost jacob 
And think about that with Jesus. If Jesus Christ would have come down in power and said, I'm going to wipe out all evil, he would have won the battle, but he would have lost all of us because we're part of the problem. But Jesus Christ came just like God when he wrestled Jacob. He came in weakness. Jesus came limiting himself. And so when, when Jacob is wrestling with the angel, which is God, he limits himself. You know, it says that Jacob prevailed. Jacob kind of won the wrestling match. Well, we know Jesus prevailed just like Jacob prevailed. And it, it looks like Jacob lost badly. Yet what does God say? He says, at this point, he's like, he changes his name. He says, your name is no longer Jacob. It's Israel. For you've wrestled with God and you've won. So Jacob wins by losing. And that's the perfect picture of what Jesus did for us. He wins by losing. Once again, Tim Keller says this, the reason Jacob could only get a touch of God's wrath was Jacob's greater son, the real messianic child, got it all. See, he only gave Jacob a touch of his wrath, but he put all of his wrath on his son, Jesus. So that moves us on to Act 5 in the story. In Genesis 35, we get a sense of how much Jacob's life has changed and how committed to God he is. Look at what he says here in verses 2 through 5. So Jacob said to his household and to all who are with him, and you've never heard this kind of language out of Jacob's mouth, get rid of the foreign gods that you have with you and purify yourselves and change your clothes. Then come, let's go to Bethel, where I will build an altar to God who answered me in the day of my distress and who has been with me wherever I've gone. So they gave Jacob all the foreign gods that they had and the rings in their ears and Jacob buried them under the oak of Shrechem. And then they set out and the terror of God fell on all the towns around them so that no one pursued them. My point here in what I call the fifth act is that you can see Jacob's changed life. You can see he's, he's more devoted to God than he's ever been. So real quickly, and I'm almost done. I got just two more, two or three more slides, and I'm going to summarize this so we can get to your comments and questions. Act six. This is in Genesis chapter 46, and I know I'm going beyond my scope of my study here. But we see now that Jacob is actively looking and listening to God for guidance. And God reassures him when um, that whole story of Joseph and he finds out Joseph is alive and then Joseph wants him to come down to Egypt. He waits to hear from God before he goes to Egypt to be with Joseph. That brings us to the final act, which is Act 7, I call it. See, the interesting thing about this story is God gives Jacob a new name. And what's the new name? Israel. And what does Israel mean? Struggles with God, triumphant in God. But what's interesting is from this, from that point on, when God gave him a new name, why isn't it every time Jacob's mentioned, he's not mentioned by his new name? Why does God keep going back? He goes back and forth. He sometimes calls him Israel, sometimes calls him Jacob. Well, you see this in the rest of the scriptures. Why does he do that? Well, 
as believers in Jesus Christ, we're in Christ. We have been given a new name, a new identity. He calls us righteous, holy, beloved. We have a new name, but it's not just a new name. It's a new identity. So you would expect from this point forward that every time you see Jacob's, his name would be Israel. But if you keep reading, you'll see that he's, he's called both. Well, why is that? Well, that's because change and transformation is complicated. Spiritual growth is complicated. It's a process. It doesn't happen overnight. Spiritual transformation. So years, years later, after, G, after Jacob died, we see something very interesting to note. And it's, and it's in the story of Moses and the burning bush in Exodus chapter 3, verses 13 to 15. Moses asked God the same thing that Jacob asked God. So Moses said to God, suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they asked me, well, what is, what is his name? Then what should I tell them? I am who I am. That is what you are to tell the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. Okay. We've all heard that. I am who I am. But then he says this. God also says to Moses, say to the Israelites, I am the Lord, the God of your fathers. I'm the God of Abraham. I'm the God of Isaac. And I'm the God of Israel. No, he doesn't say the God of Israel. He says he's the God of Jacob. He's the God of Jacob. So he's not focusing on Jacob's good side. He's not focusing on his new identity. He's saying, I'm the God of Jacob. I'm the God of the part of you that you don't want anybody else to see. I'm not just the God of your success. I'm the God of your failures. I'm not just the God of your victories. I'm the God of your defeats. I'm the God of Jacob too. He's the God of the hypocrite, the, the skeptic, the hopeless. And boy, aren't you glad that it says he's the God of Jacob? Praise God. Because that means he's the God of Greg. So with that, I will take your comments and questions. Hey, Greg. Yes. Going over what you just said about the transformation of him, it's very interesting to note that when he's with Esau back in those days, he goes, your God. He doesn't say my God, our God. He says your God. Then when he's wrestling, or I mean, at the, uh, the stairway to heaven, He's funny because God just says, like, I'm going to do this for you. And then he turns around and says, if you do this, I'll do this. Again, that growth process that you were just yeah. speaking of. And I think that's very interesting. Number two, one small correction. You keep saying the firstborn, but it's the firstborn male. That's true. Good correction. Yes. When they cut the deal, Esau and Jacob... How come they didn't go to their father, Isaac, and tell them about the deal? Was it because it wasn't theirs, the blessing wasn't theirs to uh, make a deal about? Are you talking about the birthright? The birthright. Well, they're different. You're saying they're different. Oh, you're, you're talking about the first. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah, the birthright and the blessing are different. When he sold the birthright at the early instrument. Mm -hmm. Well, that's the, that's the thing is we read this with Western minds. When we read those stories, we think... Well, come on. It was a sham. He could easily take that back. He could just take the birthright back.
I mean, you just go to your dad and say, hey, he tried to sell this to me. And, and the dad says, no, we're not, you know, it's like, the, that's the way, that's the way we would deal with it. But, the, but in their minds, when Isaac, and, and this is the blessing at the end, when he blesses Jacob, he can't take that back. He realizes it. Yeah, go ahead, Pat. I want to follow up on this birthright thing because I used to always read that as a it was a material blessing. You you got the the rights of primogenitor. And when I re read it this year, I'm starting to think: Is that also the? And maybe it's just a, a spiritual analog, but. You ended this with the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, not Abraham, Isaac, and Esau. And so when the Bible records that Esau despised his birthright, is that a deeper spiritual significance that he despised the blessings that flow through Abraham and Isaac? And that's why it falls to Jacob. Hmm. Because other than that, Esau, at least in human terms, is clearly the better person. I yeah. mean, he, he's the victim of the deception. And when they meet in chapter 33, Jacob fares that which Esau had vowed. I'm going to murder you. But yet he comes out and he hugs Forgive Esau, him. hugs Jacob, just yeah. like the, the father hugs the prodigal son. And so you think, wow, Esau is clearly the better guy. Right. But the blessing doesn't flow through him. Yeah. I do think it's more than material for sure. I think that's a good insight. That's a good insight. Anybody else? Other questions? We got some over here. What is the Torah? Oh, the Torah. The Torah is just the first five books of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And, and that, that is like sort of the, the core of the Jewish faith. And so they take the, the Torah very seriously and they associate it with the number five. And so if you were to walk in a store and there were five oranges, they would think Torah. Like I said, those five stones, I think it's very interesting. I'd never thought of this before until I did some deeper research. When David is fighting Goliath, it's like he's taking the Torah with him. It's like he's bringing God with him, which is really kind of a cool thing to think about. Yes. Well, you know what? You went to Exodus on here, which was great, but I'm going to go into Genesis. <laughs> We're going to start out with the promise that God made to send a Savior through Abraham's line, and nothing and no one would get in his way. God does what he says he'll do. And despite the rebellion and sin in our lives and Abraham's descendants, his promises are true. Now, let's talk about name. Okay, we're saved. We say we're saved. What's our new identity? What's our new name? Christian. Do we exemplify that in every action? Or are we growing toward more like Christ to live up to our name? You, I mean, you really nailed it here this morning, Greg. And I love the way you went through this whole thing. But it started out in Genesis 3.15. Okay. Yeah. Culminates. And culminates when he says, I am who I am, and my promises are true through your descendants. Yep. Just to reiterate one of the things, it's so important for us as we're reading through Genesis to realize that God did not pick the best person. It's so different than the way we operate. We would always look at who is the best, per who's, who's going to be the best CEO for this company? We always pick the best. 
But God is showing us right in Genesis that he picks the undeserving. Go ahead. With that same point, what happens at the beginning of this story? Rebecca goes to God to say, what's going on in my belly? These two are fighting. He directly says the younger is going to be superior to the, the older. And later in the Bible, it directly says God hated Esau. Directly says that in Romans. And all you see through this whole Jacob's life and story is God is the one choosing God is the one running the show. And even though humans are doing the wrong thing, it doesn't change the fact that what God wants, it ends up happening. And that is, that's what you see that throughout Genesis. You're going to see that next week with Joseph. Yep. It, whatever God wants, it's going to happen. And it's a very good instructive. Jacob was not going after God. God was chasing Jacob. That is clear in my eyes in yes. the story. I love that. The biggest seeker in the Bible wasn't Nicodemus. It wasn't, you know, Zacchaeus. No, it was God. God is the biggest seeker in the Bible. Yeah, to follow up on that, throughout this whole chunk of scripture, it's like Jacob is searching for his identity. He lies to his father. Oh, I'm Esau. When he meets Laban, Laban says, oh, you are bone of my bone. Well, almost bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. Doesn't quite complete the, the Genesis thing, but you're my bone. You're my flesh. You're a relative. And then it's only when he wrestles with God, then he admits, I'm Jacob. He actually uses his correct name after lying to everybody. And then God gives him the new name. Mm. And, and, you know, I mean, the number one question for every human being is the one Jesus poses. Who do you say I am? But if we can't answer that, we don't know who we are. Great thought. Great thought. I'm going to go on some heresy here. I wonder if Rebecca had told her son what God had told her when the boys were in her womb. And if she had prepared. Yeah, absolutely. What do you think they did in the tents? They would like. She talk told him everything. And. She was actually. I think she. I think she told Isaac. I think, I think she told Isaac, and Isaac resisted. And said, "No, Esau is the blessed." And and I. And so Isaac was fighting God his whole life, and that's why he trembles at the end because he realized I tried to fight God, I, and it didn't work. Okay, I, by my thinking, and I think like a Greek, I have to have facts. Blah blah blah. I would disagree with you on the five stones that David went after Goliath, because the scripture says there were four other stones in case Goliath's four other brothers came along. So David picked up five sling stones yeah. to cover his butt in case he got yeah. Let me just tell you, I, I'm totally fine if I'm wrong, but I just want to tell you, like, there's layers of truth. Truth is unfolding. So, And what's cool about it, if you really get into it, is there's the obvious what, what he's writing, but then there's these other kind of non-obvious things that are put in there. So, yes, I think you're right. He took five stones stones because he took five stones but then the five stones represented the brothers of Goliath just in case he had to kill them but then the five stones could also represent the Torah so what you see remember 8,000 words they only have 8,000 words so they stack them and so there's truth is like there's layers and if you really get into the rabbinic studies they're constantly trying to find these nuggets of and again I, I'm, I'm fine if I'm wrong about that 
So I, I think that there's a hyperlink for everybody in the room to the story of Jacob and Esau that exists in Hebrews chapter 12. And this is an application for all of us. So scripture says in Hebrews 12, verse 14, make every effort to live in peace with all men and to be holy. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one misses the grace of God and that, it, that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. See that no one is sexually immoral or is godless like Esau, who for a single meal sold his inheritance rights as the oldest son. Afterward, as you know, when he wanted to inherit this blessing, he was rejected. He could bring about no change of mind, though he sought the blessing with tears. So the application for all of us is that Esau chooses the temporal satisfaction of a meal over the eternal blessing of his birthright. And so we are cautioned to avoid doing the same in that those of us who are in Christ have a birthright, as you point out, in the stairway to heaven, right? That perfect sacrifice. So we, we ought not to choose that which satisfies us in a temporal manner, but instead fix our eyes on the eternal, which is Christ in us. And that's what Esau, in essence, rejected. I just wanted to say that I'm not so sure that Esau is necessarily the, the better man. I think it goes back to John chapter one. God knows what's in Jesus knows what's in someone's heart. And externally, he may have looked better and he may have done the right thing when he met with Jacob. But just exactly what he said in Hebrews and in some other areas and even in yeah. Malachi. Well, know. and he wanted to kill his brother. I mean, so that, that he wasn't that great of a guy. I, they were both flawed. I think the point, Larry, is if you had to pick one of those two guys to, to get the blessing, to be the messianic seed, the obvious one seems to be Esau. Outwardly. Yeah, outwardly. Okay, does somebody volunteer to close us in prayer? Thanks, Big Dan. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you. You bless us each and every day. So many blessings, we can't even comprehend what they are. We thank you for that. But most of all, we thank you for the gift of your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. You watch over comfort each and every individual here and their families. And watch over as a week as we go about our daily chores and daily duties and work. May we serve you in the way that you feel comfortable with. May we be disciples in this world for you and for your son. We thank you for you again for who you are. And we thank you for this men's Bible study and the teachings of the instructors. We ask this all in your son's precious name, Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Amen. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Gospel Addict Podcast. Feel free to contact us via email at gospeladdictpodcast at gmail.com. Stay tuned for our next episode. And remember, on your worst days, you're never beyond the reach of God's grace. And on your best days, you're never beyond the need of God's grace. See you next time.